Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, this is part two, as Ken continues to explore Protestantism from the perspective of being a, a mere Christian, Ken. Uh, maybe we need to talk about that a little bit. Uh, because a, a lot of this was sparked by an article that you came across in Christianity Today months ago now, I think it was in February. Uh, Wait, You're Not Deconstructing by a theologian, I think her name was uh, Kirsten Sanders. Yes. Uh, but that sparked the idea of taking a look at the branches of Christendom. And before people deconstruct and then deconvert, maybe they ought to get a look at Christianity, because it's been around a while, and there's a lot to think about there. Uh, yeah, that's right on target, Joe. I recently had a couple interactions with uh, two individuals on Twitter. That's, of course, always very uh, an interesting, you know, dialogue. You have so many characters, and you kind of go back and forth. But I talked with uh, two people that had described themselves as ex-evangelical. Uh, so they were ex-Christians. Now they considered themselves atheists. So, you know, we had kind of an extended dialogue. And, uh, you know, we I asked them a little bit about, you know, what led them to give up Christianity and to adopt uh, a secular worldview. And ultimately, as it kind of unpacked, I realized that many of them, in my opinion, um, and I say it respectfully, many of them had not looked at the best that Christianity has to offer. Um, they gave up their faith for a variety of reasons, but I remember with one individual, I said, well, uh, for example, have you ever read Augustine or Anselm or Aquinas? I said, these men devoted their lives to presenting historic Christianity, defending it, uh, offering both theological and philosophical defenses of Christianity. And of course, uh, the person had not. And um, I said, well, you know, there are some also some very good people writing today. But it, it made me think, Joe and Dave, that um, a lot of people do give up on Christianity. I remember Chesterton, a 19th century uh, Catholic thinker, uh, whose work had a big influence on people like Tolkien and Lewis, Chesterton said, you know, it's not so much that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. Mm. And you know what? Christianity is hard. Um, you know, as a, as a Christian myself, um, I, uh, for example, when I think about my career as a Christian, I think, well, I don't really have a career, I have a vocation. So, you know, in your career, you're trying to push yourself. Hey, I'm, I'm Ken Samples. I wrote this book. I did this. Uh, I want people to pay attention to it. But as a Christian, I feel that my vocation extends far beyond that. I want to promote the person of Christ. I want to present classical or historic Christianity, meaning that, uh, you know, characteristics like humility are things I need to take very carefully. And, and of course, you know, there, there are plenty of times where I would rather be into myself rather than saying, wow, I have a family. 
I have a wife, I have children, uh, I have friends, I am committed to a church community, I have these responsibilities. Christianity is not easy. Um, and then, of course, uh, people have given up on it. And I thought to myself, I wonder if that person had read Augustine's Confessions, or I wonder if they had been exposed to Thomas Aquinas, or I wonder if they had been exposed to Athanasius, whether they would have taken the views that they have taken. So I think this series is an opportunity to give a defense of Christianity by explaining the maybe a little bit of the breadth of our faith. I have a personal relationship with God, but Christianity was moving on for 2,000 years before Ken Sample showed up. I think we should talk about our faith, not just in personal terms, and I think that's important, but also historically. So uh, Christians are people of the book, and we should be people who are learned, because there are a lot of people out there today who are very confused, and we want to help them. Mm, yeah. All right. Well, we have some more questions to work through. But before we proceed with uh, this first question on Protestantism's distinctive ethos, can I, one of the comments I appreciated on the last podcast was uh, that we need to understand what Luther went through. And maybe you can, you can kind of uh, highlight that or repeat it uh, on this podcast, because I thought that was powerful. Yeah, I have, uh, I have long thought that to understand, to understand what it means to be a Protestant, you have to get into the head of Luther, maybe into the heart of Luther. And uh, Luther, of course, was a searcher. Uh, some people, uh, I, I've read that of all the people in history, most of the books have been written about Jesus, but the person who emerges second is Martin Luther. That kind of tells you the influence of the Protestant Reformation um, I mean, think of what's happened in Europe. I mean, it had this Roman Empire, you know, a lot of things have happened in Europe. Some historians say none of that was any more important than the Protestant Reformation. It changed the way we think about economics. It changed the way we think about liberty. It changed the way we think about our relationship to God. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Orthodox and Catholics are sometimes critical of elements of Protestantism. And of course, Protestants turn that criticism around and say, well, we're critical of some of your ideas. But Protestantism exploded. And I think its influence is, is still being felt today. But it comes back to Luther. Here he is. He gets caught in a thunderstorm, cries out, uh, as I probably would too, St. Anne, save me, I'll become a monk. Well, uh, he lives through the thunderstorm, he becomes a monk, he's in the monastery, and he finds out, uh, this isn't all I thought it was cracked up to be. I'm trying to be good, I'm praying, I, I you know, am embracing penance, I am fasting, I'm doing all of the things that I am being told as a, as a good medieval Catholic to do, and I discover that uh, I can't stop sinning. Um, I discover that the more I try to be patient, I become impatient. The more I try to be humble, the more I'm driven to pride. The more I try to be pure, the more I have lustful thoughts. And so Luther in the monastery says, um, instead of loving God, I, 
I see God as my enemy. Von Staupitz, one of his, his uh, leaders, says, you know, Luther, you're so insecure. You got so many kind of religious hangups. Why don't you go read the Bible? It's a dangerous thing to do. Luther began an intensive study, and he came away from that study concluding that salvation is not something, it's, it's not a combination where God does his part and you do your part. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, and it comes through faith. And of course, Luther nails his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door there in Germany, and the world's never been the same since. So I think, I think to appreciate Protestantism, you got to get into the mind and the heart of Luther. And, and by the way, I, I have found, um, you know, I, I grew up kind of an, as a nominal Catholic, but in my late teens, early 20s, I took my Catholicism very seriously. I thought for some time that I would become a Catholic priest. Uh, in fact, I went uh, with the Passionist Father to, to uh, uh, Mexico. Uh, we built cinder block homes for the poor. And uh, I thought this may be the religious group that I will become part of. Uh, there were things that changed that. Uh, Walter Martin and my wife Joan are two of the people that moved me in a different direction. Uh, but, you know, I, I, uh, I look back on that time very fondly. Uh, I'm kind of an unusual ex-Catholic in that I think most of the things about the Catholic Church I appreciated. Now, now again, you have to understand, I've written a book critiquing the Catholic view of Mary. I've debated some of the, I think, most able Catholic apologists. But I look back at my Catholic time uh, largely in gratitude. Now, from there, I became a Protestant. I was a member of a Lutheran church. I then was a member of a Presbyterian, later Dutch Reformed. I'm now an Anglican. Um, and all of those traditions, I learned a lot. And I always tried to get in and understand the inside track. And, uh, you know, I was educated. My, I received my bachelor's degree at Concordia University. In my day, it was called Christ College Irvine here in Southern California. And uh, I was taught by uh, the uh, contemporary Lutherans. And we, we talked about these ideas. We talked about the Reformation. We talked about justification. And I think in, in some respects, um, we tend to benefit. Uh, and one of the things that I'm a little bit frustrated with American evangelicals is that I don't think they go deep into history. I think we may be relying too much on our personal experiences in the Christian life. And I think we need to take a bigger dose of, of church history. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wrote that book, Classic Christian Thinkers. I thought this is something, uh, I, I work here at Reasons to Believe, but I meet many people who don't have a grasp of history. And I thought, I'd like to, I'd like to give them something that might help them grow in that way. So we, in our previous show, we talked a little bit about the spirit of Luther. We talked a little bit about uh, the Protestant Reformation, both in its magisterial side and, and the radical Reformation. 
We talked a little bit about the size of Protestantism, Joe, and I think now we're ready for uh, question number six. Yeah. All right. Uh, what characterizes Protestantism's distinctive ethos? Yeah, I think that this is something, you know, previously we looked at with both uh, Orthodoxy and Catholicism. And I think we immediately have to go back to the solos. Um, there are five solos that represent kind of classical Protestantism. Uh, right, at the, right at the forefront is Sola Scriptura. And I think Sola Scriptura is a very powerful teaching. Um, it tells us that scripture has no peer, that, that scripture is unique in and of itself, um, that scripture is the final court of appeals, that there's, there's nothing that can top it. You know, uh, even the word of the Pope, even the patriarchs of the Orthodox tradition, even church history, um, the magisterial teaching of the Catholic Church, that scripture carries with it an authority. And I think the strongest argument for sola scriptura, and by the way, I've debated this with uh, Catholic theologians. I have a friend uh, named Father Pacwa, Father Mitch Pacwa. Um, I met Mitch through Walter Martin. Walter and Mitch became friends. They're both charismatics. Uh, and they, uh, I was introduced to Father Pacwa through my associationship with Walter Martin and the Christian Research Institute. Well, Mitch and I debated the question of the Catholic view of authority versus the Protestant view of authority. And one of the points that I make in that debate, and by the way, you can listen to it online, you'll see a a thinner Ken Samples in the debate. You'll see, uh, I think I have black hair in those days. Mm. Uh, I've, I've aged a bit. Um, but one of the points that I make in the debate with my friend Mitchell Paqua, and, and by the way, Mitch, I asked Mitch, along with my associate Elliot Miller, when we wrote our book, The Cult of the Virgin, which is a Protestant evaluation of Catholic Mariology and the apparitions of Mary, I went to Mitch and I said, you know, I'd like you to write a response and we'll include it in the book. And I remember initially my, my co-author, co Elliot Miller, he said, you're going to do what? You're going to let a Catholic respond? And I said, what do we got to lose? We're, we don't want to misrepresent. We, uh, and what I really like about it is even though that book is now 30 years old, it's out of print, by the way. Uh, Amazon still has copies, though. Um, <laughs> But what I liked about it was I thought 30 years ago I was trying to practice the golden rule of apologetics. I, I didn't want to misrepresent the Catholic faith. Uh, I differed at points with it, but I still, I still had a sense of gratitude for what I learned as a Catholic. And one of the points that I make in my debate with Father Mitch is this, that I think Jesus's authority, now remember who Jesus is, he's the second person of the Trinity, taken human flesh, I think in the New Testament, we discover that Jesus's final court of appeals is the word of God. It's scripture. Now, again, um, Catholics are going to push back on that. Orthodox are going to push back on that. But I think it's a powerful point. And I think right at the heart of the Protestant Reformation is this idea of biblical authority, that scripture has no peer 
And that is, I think, a very powerful uh, point. I mean, if you go to a if you go to a Catholic church or to an Orthodox church, and then you visit their bookstores, you will find in the Catholic church and the Catholic bookstore, in the Orthodox church and the Orthodox bookstore, you'll have lots of wonderful books about the saints. In fact, you'll probably get some good books by St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and St. Anselm. Uh, but if you go to a Protestant church, particularly an evangelical contemporary Protestant church, and you go to their bookstore, you'll have a, a lot of Bibles on sale. They won't have a lot about the saints. They'll have a lot of Bibles. And I think that's characteristic of, of Protestantism, that scripture is the final court of appeals. Now, I, I want to talk a bit more about that, but I think we also have to talk about a second sola, and that second sola is sola fide. And that's the idea that I am saved by grace, but I'm saved by grace through faith and by faith alone. Uh, you know, don't misunderstand Lutherans and Reformed and Anglicans and Methodists and Wesleyans. They're not saying good works are unimportant. They believe good works are important, but they believe that you are saved by what by what God has done alone, what God has done through Christ alone. And the way you connect with that is through faith. And so the whole system of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, all of that is a gift from God. Now, again, anybody who would say, well, it's easy believism, you've got a ticket to heaven, you don't have to, you don't have to live a godly life. People like Luther and Calvin were fond of saying, faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. Luther would say, saving faith is pregnant with good works. So to some extent, uh, I wonder if Catholics and Protestants 500 years ago were not speaking past each other to some extent. I think that through the centuries, there has been more dialogue. Unfortunately, though, I have to tell you as a student of Christendom, a proud student of Christendom, I love, I love Christendom. I love the history of my faith. But often it is uh, Catholics misunderstanding Protestants, Protestants misunderstanding Catholics, both Catholics and Protestants misunderstanding Orthodoxy. Um, and of course, this comes back to a central theme uh, that I present in my own teaching, and that is to understand somebody else's beliefs. You have to stop being an apologist. You have to stop polemics. You first try to understand why do Catholics have devotion to Mary? What's going on there? Well, I, I think a lot of times it's hard to understand, you know, when Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I think, wow, this is such a different group. They come, they have the same Bible, it seems like the same Bible, uh, even though critical passages are mistranslated in my opinion. But I think, where do these non-Trinitarians come from? Or I have Mormons come to my door and I think, wow, they, they, they have a tritheism, they have their own prophet. Then I encounter Muslims and Hindus, and I think, wow, how do I understand that? 
But you know, the interesting thing is sometimes you have to work hard at understanding other Christians. If you want to understand the Reformation, try to get into Luther's heart, into Luther's mind. And what comes out of that is sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola deo gloria. So scripture is my supreme authority, the final court of appeals. It's not that church history is not important. It's not that oral tradition isn't important. Uh, those details are often very critical to understanding Christianity and even understanding the Bible. But the Bible is a supreme authority. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, by Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria. This whole process of redemption should, should bring me to give glory to God. So those are kind of the ethos. Uh, I think evangelicalism, uh, to some extent, still holds to those ideas. But in large measure, I think evangelicalism has also moved a bit away from those traditional uh, Protestant ideas. And here I want to talk a little bit about Protestantism in the context of what all of us know as evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. You know, the word evangelical actually comes from a Greek word, euangelion, which means the gospel. So initially to be an evangelical meant you were a gospel person. You were emphasizing salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Well, um, fortunately, Alistair McGrath is a very good historian. By the way, McGrath has three doctoral degrees, all from Oxford University. Wow. One is in uh, theology. Uh, it's called divinity. So he has a doctoral degree in divinity, which is an old word for theology. He then has one in intellectual history. And then he has a third in, um, I always forget the particular area of science, but he earned all those doctoral degrees from a university that's almost a thousand years old. And I think, what a remarkable individual. This is what he says. He gives us a four-point description of uh, evangelicalism. Uh, number one, a strong biblical emphasis preaching and teaching from scripture, group Bible study, devotional reading of God's word. Two, a special emphasis upon the atoning cross of Christ. Uh, and of course, this comes out in the evangelical hymns and songs that talk about Christ, talk about Christ's death on the cross. Third, McGrath says, uh, evangelicalism stresses the need for personal conversion, the new birth, uh, John 3, to be born again, uh, and oftentimes evangelicals are critical of formal or external acceptance of Christian teachings or creeds. And then fourth, a deep commitment to evangelism, and that usually comes out in the form of kind of revivalism. Uh, I think of, you know, the four spiritual laws. I think of uh, Billy Graham's Crusades. I think of Greg Laurie and the Harvest Crusades. I think even further back to the First and Second Great Awakenings in America. Um, and so those are four 
ideas uh, or four descriptors, if you will, of uh, evangelicalism. And Joe and Dave, I have to repeat this, and that is many Protestants are mainline, are liberal, are progressive, have moved away from kind of classical Christian ideas like original sin or the Trinity or uh, the atonement. Um, mainline churches have, religion has become kind of moralism, uh, Unitarianism rather than Trinitarian. Uh, ism and and of course uh, so the real Protestant churches the conservative Lutheran conservative Reformed conservative Anglican conservative Wesleyan conservative Presbyterian conservative Methodist the they still affirm these Protestant distinctives and usually reflect uh, a more modern evangelicalism. Mm. Good. You've talked about the relationship between scripture and tradition before in conjunction with uh, orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, but I think it'll be uh, great for us to hear uh, how Protestantism understands scripture and tradition. Yeah, I think this is right at the core of uh, what it means to be Protestant. You know, if I were to reduce, I, I don't care to reduce the five solas. I think all of them are critical and they're all interdependent upon one another. But two of them that come right to the forefront uh, is sola fide, you're saved by faith alone. But undergirding all of that is this idea of sola scriptura. And oftentimes, historians of the Protestant Reformation will say that the watchword of the Reformation of the 16th century is sola scriptura. So scripture is the absolute norm, the standard of doctrine, the final court of appeals in all matters that affect my faith and my practice. And that should be true not only of me as an individual Christian, but it should be the position held by all the churches. So scripture is the final authority. Scripture is the absolute norm. Doesn't mean that church tradition isn't important. In fact, I would go even further and say a lot of times church tradition gives you critical apologetic answers. Uh, who wrote the four gospels? Well, initially there were no names on the documents, but it's the early church who tells you, well, it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Where do we get this creed? Well, Athanasius, Irenaeus. Church history is filled with critical information. But the idea of sola scriptura says that scripture is the supreme authority. Now, that doesn't tell you how the Bible should be interpreted. Uh, it's a position of authority rather than a position of, of hermeneutics. And of course, again, uh, I believe God's revealed himself in two books, the book of the literal book of scripture, the figurative book of nature. How do we work those together? Well, that brings us right back to the heart of what we try to do here at Reasons to Believe. How does the book of nature and the book of scripture, can they be integrated? How do they look at, at issues of science and philosophy? How do we uh, be faithful to that? Now, again, to kind of sink a little deeper into this question of sola scriptura, I think sola scriptura at its core means three things. One, 
authority. So the final authority is not the position of the Pope or the magisterium. It's not the position of oral tradition. It's scripture. Scripture's that final authority. But secondly, it, scripture can be the final authority because of its sufficiency. It speaks to our life, what we should believe doctrinally, how we should live ethically. And then thirdly, a book that can serve as our authority and can be sufficient, it has to have a sufficient clarity. Uh, scripture has to, not everything in scripture is clear. Uh, even Peter says, you know, there are things written in there by Paul that are kind of hard to understand. Uh, imagine how Peter must have interacted with Paul. Talk about two very different backgrounds. Peter, a fisherman, bumping into the rabbi who knows everything. I mean, if I were to meet Paul, I would think Paul knows everything. You know, he's, Paul is the real Bible answer man. Um, but how do we understand scripture? Is, is, is there a sufficiency to the, that gives us a clarity of the essential things of the Bible? So that's right there. Now, what we've done previously when we looked at Orthodoxy and Catholicism, I introduced this very fine book by Robert Latham, last name L-E-T-H-A-M, Robert Latham. He's a, he's a conservative Presbyterian theologian, wrote a wonderful little book through Western eyes. He gives kind of a reformed view of Eastern Orthodoxy. And what I love about it is he's so very fair. He's very careful uh, to, to, you know, to be responsible in the way that he evaluates uh, orthodox belief. But in that book, Through Western Eyes, Robert Latham kind of gives us the three branches of Christendom. And he says regarding authority in scripture, the, that the orthodox, they place scripture and tradition side by side. He's... Latham says the Catholic Church places tradition above scripture, and all I mean by that is you have the magisterium, which is made up of the Pope and the College of Cardinals, who are the teaching authors of the church. So the magisterium is the one who takes together oral tradition and scripture and gives you the proper interpretation. So Catholics look at Protestants and say you don't have any you, you got a Bible, but you don't know how to interpret it. That's why there are thousands of denominations. I mean, you hear that frequently. That criticism of Protestantism comes both from Catholics and Orthodox. But Latham says that Protestantism, uh, instead of putting the tradition and scripture side by side, and instead of putting tradition above scripture, the distinctive of Protestantism is that Protestants place scripture above tradition. Uh, there's respect for tradition, there's value for tradition, but scripture has no peer. Can you give us uh, a few examples of the traditions that we're talking about here that may or may not have approval among these different, uh, 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 you know, institutions? Well, um, I mean, one of the criticisms that is sometimes uh, presented by Protestants to Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox is this. What are those oral traditions? Give me a list of them. Tell me exactly what they are. Let me then compare them to the Bible. Sometimes it's kind of vague. 
in Catholicism and Orthodoxy as to exactly what constitutes oral tradition. But I can give you some examples. Uh, some of the examples would relate to Mary. Uh, they may relate to Marian dogmas, um, relating to questions of, uh, you know, Mary's status in terms of her, uh, you know, her, her perpetual virgin uh, with regard to, you know, her being, um, uh, you know, assumed into heavens. So that, that may be part of it. Part, another part, Dave, would likely be questions relating to the authority of the bishops and their, its relationship to scripture. But if I could still offer a, a bit of a criticism, it's not immediately clear to me exactly what is the content of oral tradition. And uh, the oral tradition that I have seen, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with, but I don't think it is something that would stand above, above scripture. But again, I'll, I'll encourage some of our readers to take a look at Robert Latham's uh, book in that kind of context. All right, let's move to another question. What are the strengths of traditional evangelical Protestantism? Yeah, this is a good, good question. Uh, again, let me differentiate. You got mainline Protestants and mainline Protestants are no longer Christian in terms of their doctrine and their values. Uh, some of the mainline Protestant churches, um, they ordain homosexuals. They believe that homosexual marriage is acceptable. So it's not just differences about theological issues, it's also differences about moral principles, sexuality, uh, and of course, continuing discussion of controversial issues today, race, gender, class, etc. But if we talk about Protestantism, uh, we need, I think, to, to also talk about that part of Protestantism that still holds deeply to the Protestant Reformation, kind of the strength of the traditional or more evangelical Protestants. And I think there are a number of important strengths. Um, the authority of Scripture. Um, I, again, I have, uh, I've read a good bit of Augustine, not all of them. He wrote 5 million words after all. Uh, Thomas wrote 10 million words, uh, you know, so working your way through some of these great Catholic thinkers is a lifetime, uh, not something you do quickly, but I actually think when I have read Augustine and Aquinas, I'm not sure that they wouldn't turn around and say, you're right, Ken, scripture has no peer. Um, and, I, and I think one of the reasons why Protestants have largely, Protestants are usually more Augustinian than they are Thomistic, but not exclusively. My old friend, Norman Geisler, uh, who was a, a brilliant apologist, a, a brilliant philosophical thinker, uh, Geisler was a Thomist. He taught a whole generation of evangelicals Thomism. Uh, I think one of the attractive features about Thomas, and Thomas and Augustine have many uh, appealing characteristics about them, but they're so biblical. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say Augustine and Thomas Aquinas largely had scripture memorized. That was their business. 
And, and Thomas, by the way, always thought of himself principally as a Bible teacher. Um, they have very strong views about the authority of Scripture. Of course, my Catholic friends are going to push back on that and say, Ken, you're, uh, you're giving it kind of an evangelical flavor. These were, after all, Roman Catholics. And I don't want to deny the Catholic views of St. Augustine or maybe even more explicitly Thomas Aquinas. Remember, the Catholic Church has evolved through the centuries. The Catholic Church at the time of Augustine and even Aquinas is not the same as the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation and post-Reformation. Uh, things have changed. Uh, perspectives have changed as much as as much as the Orthodox and Catholic traditions would say they have not changed, I think that they have. And I'm, I, again, trying to be very fair. But a strength of traditional Protestantism or conservative evangelical Protestantism is one, the authority of Scripture. Two, that salvation is a gift of divine grace received through faith and only in Christ. That's back to the sola, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus. Classical Protestants, ecclesiology, I think, offers unity and diversity. Um, you can be a Protestant and be Lutheran. You can be a Protestant and be Reformed. You can be a Protestant and be a Methodist. You can be a Protestant and be Anglican. But in all of those traditions, you go back to kind of a, a unity as well as diversity. Uh, so you, you could turn the criticism made by Orthodox and Catholic sources and say that there's a positive side of denominationalism. Now, now again, um, if I could rewrite church history, I might have Luther and Calvin meet. Luther and Zwingli met. They even had a, they even had a council, a, a dialogue. How can we present a unified Protestantism to the world? But they spent more time arguing and less trying to cooperate. I wonder, though, if Luther and Calvin had met, I wonder if Luther would have looked at Calvin and said, I've met my match. Uh, I wonder, uh, and I wish, uh, th this, is, this is Ken Samples talking now. I wish Protestantism was a lot more united. I wish Protestants would, would talk with Catholics and Orthodox and say, where do we really agree? Is it possible without compromising our doctrinal integrity that we could talk about being allies? I mean, I think, I think, correct me if you think I'm wrong, I think we're living in an increasingly post-Christian culture. I think America, a country that I am grateful to God for, that I was born into, it seems that our country is moving in a post-Christian way. I could be wrong. I think it may come to a time where conservative Catholics, conservative Orthodox, conservative Protestants will see each other more as allies rather than as competitors or even worse as enemies. Now, again, um, I don't want I don't want Protestants to think they're selling the Reformation down the river by this, but I I think that idea of salvation by grace through faith in Christ is important. So you have a unity and a diversity. And then the, the, the last one I'll mention there, Joe, is I think classical Protestantism is very strong on issuing issues relating to Christ and culture. Um, 
I think the Lutherans and the Reformed and the Anglican especially, especially um, maybe the Magisterial Reformation, but not exclusively. I, I think the idea of building culture, um, Lutherans, Reformed, Anglicans, uh, Methodists have strong university systems. They have a strong sense of uh, cultural norms. Um, I'm not sure you can conceive of America without the Protestant Reformation. So if you see the birth of America as being a good thing, and I certainly do, I think to some extent you need to appreciate the Protestant emergence as a third branch of Christendom. Very good. All right, here's another question. What are the weaknesses of traditional evangelical Protestantism? Yes, and we've done this for the previous branches, we talked about orthodoxy and its strengths and weaknesses. We've talked about Catholicism and strengths and weaknesses. And I think all of the branches of Christendom have strengths and weaknesses. Now, a lot of times, of course, the particular branches try to say, no, the other two branches have weaknesses. We just have strengths. And I don't buy it. Uh, I, I've looked very carefully at all three and I see great strengths but I also see weaknesses. Um, I, think, I think that uh, with conservative evangelicals who tend toward uh, a or more original Protestantism, I think a lot of times Protestant evangelicals today, they don't really understand classical Protestantism. They don't try to get into Luther's head. They don't really understand justification by faith, or if they do, they don't emphasize it enough. Um, they've taken for granted the authority of the Bible, but they don't attempt to defend it or interpret it. I mean, it's one thing to say the Bible is the word of God and the final authority. Then you have the question, well, how do you interpret this document? And how does it work in relationship to science or philosophy? So I think uh, a, a concern or a criticism I have of uh, conservative evangelicals is maybe they've stepped a little bit away from their traditional Protestantism. Another criticism that I have, and I, I, again, uh, I want you to, I want you to know that uh, I don't say this to cut people down. Um, I say it to try to be a fair in my evaluation. I don't think Protestants care enough about unity. Um, I, I, think, I think all the denominations have tribalism. I think all of the branches of Christendom, you know, we, we get together and, you know, pat each other on the back is how wonderful it is to be, you know, a Protestant, how wonderful it is to be a Calvinist or to be a Lutheran or to be a Wesleyan. Um, I, I'm sometimes surprised. I, I think Christianity is divided because largely Christians don't want to be united. Uh, I'm, not telling, I'm not telling any Christian to stop contending for the truth. That's a biblical command. But what about promoting unity? What, what about the idea when Jesus prayed in John 17 that his church, Jesus's church, would have unity comparable to the Father and the Son, is that only possible in the next world? Or could it be an important thing to consider it now? And then, of course, uh, how about a little charity? 
right? We want to express that. I think another criticism is at times modern evangelicalism is kind of doctrinally light. Uh, I remember Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a Lutheran theologian, later in life converted Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, Pelican said to David Neff, the then editor of Christianity Today, said, you evangelicals, you talk, you always talk about Jesus, but you don't think deeply enough about the Trinity. I mean, think about that. Um, I think evangelicalism does have uh, an attachment to Jesus. Now, that's not a bad attachment to have. But remember who Jesus is. He's the spirit-anointed son of the Father. Um, sometimes when I walk into evangelical churches, I don't see any kind of Trinitarian symbols. I, when I hear evangelicals pray, uh, seldom do they, they might mention the Father, and they might talk about Jesus, um, but seldom do they have kind of Trinitarian language. And, you know, everything in the Catholic Church begins with, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's that, it's that way in the Anglican tradition as well. Isn't it true that, that uh, within any of these traditions, if you talk to the average person, that they are pretty light? I mean, they may go to a, a church that has a ceremony that includes them speaking these particular points that you just brought up. But if you got them off by themselves, that isn't the way that they relate to their Christian beliefs. They're more just as lightweight as you find in the Protestant community. I think that's a fair criticism. I think that's a fair point. Um, you know, the Orthodox and Catholic traditions, I think, have very strong Trinitarian um, components. Liturgy. But their liturgy is deeply Trinitarian. Um, and yet, um, you know, uh, the average person who is Catholic or Orthodox, they might say, well, that's my dad's religion. You know, that's, they, they don't necessarily do it. So any of these criticisms could be applied uh, to the other branches. I, I think evangelical Protestants probably don't think enough about worldview. Um, some do. I think I think particularly Calvinists, I think the Reformed traditions think a lot about worldview, but I, I, I would encourage more of maybe the non-denominational uh, parts of evangelicalism. So Joe, those would be some of my cautious, hopefully constructive criticisms, hopefully not uh, tearing uh, genuine Christians down. Oh, that's helpful. Two more questions to work through. Here's the first one. How close is Protestantism to the Catholic and Orthodox theological traditions? Yeah, this is a controversial question. And I, uh, I should tell you that not everybody has been happy with the conclusions I've come to on this issue. Um, I would say some of the strongest criticism I've ever received as a author or as a apologist or as a scholar were uh, from people who thought I was too uh, accepting of, of Catholic theology. Uh, some have suggested that I should be much more critical. 
Um, of course, my view is there are real genuine differences within Christendom and they may be intractable. And largely they come down to three things. Um, the authority of the church versus the authority of scripture. Uh, that's probably number one. The second one has to do with the, the specific relationship between grace, faith, and works. How can I be saved by grace uh, through faith? But then how does that faith, how does it become vibrant? Um, and so Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox differ over that. And then I think probably the third biggest one, there are other differences as well, but the third one would be devotion to Mary and to the saints. Um, you know, uh, it's one thing to respect Mary and to treat Mary as a, uh, as a model for the faith. In many ways, she was. She was uh, a remarkable woman and a remarkable uh, follower of, of her son. And, um, and there are many saints um, that lived remarkable lives. It's one thing to have uh, respect for them. It's another to have devotion. It's another to, to ask them to intercede for us in, before God. So those questions uh, remain there. They may be intractable. I don't know what the future will hold. Um, I think that Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox have made some... Uh, they they have come to a place where I think they're understanding each other a bit more. But, um, you know, there are many Protestants who look at Catholicism and Orthodoxy and they say they're just, uh, they are invalid churches. They are churches that are not authentically Christian. Now, what do the Orthodox and the Catholics think of Protestantism? Well, I, I think that there's some agreement between the Orthodox and Catholics. When they look at each other, they say, well, we differ over some important things. We differ over the filioque. We differ most over the exact relationship of the Pope to the patriarchs in the Eastern tradition. But I think when Catholics and Orthodox look at each other, they say they are authentic churches. And what makes them authentic churches in their mind is apostolic authority. When Orthodox and Catholics look at Protestants, they say they're, they are devotional groups, but they're not an authentic church because they don't have that apostolic connection. It doesn't go back to Peter and the apostles. Now, of course, Protestants are gonna, not going to take that very easily. They're going to turn it around and say, well, we have the ultimate apostolic authority. It's called Scripture. So those are, those are continuing debates, um, you know, doctrine values uh, are, are, are part of that discussion. Uh, and, and again, I think, uh, and I use the word conservative, not politically, but I mean it theologically. If you're Orthodox Catholic and Protestants and you really believe in historic Christianity, I think the common ground is going to be significant. The differences are real, but the common ground is significant. And, and again, if I welcome anybody to challenge my view of how to think about the branches of Christendom, but I would turn it around and say, I'd like everybody to go out and read the Nicene Creed. 
fact, I want our listeners to do that. After you sign off, uh, go on the web um, and read through the Nicene Creed. And remember that the Nicene Creed is affirmed by the Orthodox tradition, it's affirmed by the Catholic tradition, it's affirmed by the Protestant magisterials, and even, even uh, the, the members of the Radical Reformation would probably still accept uh, the Nicene Creed. And then I want you to ask yourself this question. How, much, how big a slice of Christianity is the Nicene Creed? Now, that's all I want. I, that's all I want. You come to your own conclusion. I don't tell you what to think. I'm just trying to challenge here. On the other hand, I think you also have to look at what, what has the Catholic and Orthodox churches said about Protestantism. And what, what sticks in the craw, I think, of a lot of Protestants is what the Catholic Church said at the Council of Trent, where there was statements that if you held the views of justification by faith, um, that you would be cursed by God. Wow. So, you know, when I'm invited to go to Biola University in the summer and they have an apologetic program there and many of the best apologists uh, are Catholic. I mean, you read Peter Kraft, I think, my goodness, this guy is as good as Lewis, maybe better, I don't know. Uh, so they have me come over and say, Ken, talk to us about our relationship with the Catholic Church in terms of apologetic thinking. And I, that's what I tell the students. Look, I'm not here to tell you to accept Ken Sample's view. I want you to read the Nicene Creed and ask yourself, how big a slice of Christianity is it? Could you believe the Nicene Creed and be a non-Christian? And then I say, now go and take a look at some of the areas of difference, authority, justification, Mariology, and ask yourself, how, how important is that? Um, having said all of that, I'd still like to encourage, uh, I think Catholics, Orthodox, and Protestants can be worldview allies. I mean, I, I, think, I think we're living in a post-Christian culture. Uh, it might get worse, might get a lot worse. Of course, my post-millennialists tell me it'll get worse and then it's gonna get better. Ooh. Of course, my pre-mill friends will say it's gonna get really bad and then it'll get better, <laughs> then it'll get bad and get better. But that's kind of where I stand on that issue. And I, Joe, I think we've got one more here. Yeah, one final question. What is Protestantism's approach to doctrine, defense, and devotion? Yeah, and this kind of relates us back to that, you know, Christianity Today article of deconstruction, um, deconversion. What, what does Protestantism have to offer in terms of doctrine, defense, and devotion? Well, I think right at the heart of the Protestant conviction is that the scripture has no peer. Scripture is this powerful revelation from God. It is a, it's in propositional form. It's the most scrutinized book in the history of the world, and it still stands. Still people at elite universities, big churches, small churches, everywhere throughout the world do say, uh, you know, this is God's word, here I stand, God help me, uh, to quote Luther. I think from a de defense 
Protestants are usually, they fall in the category of defending scripture historically. Um, you know, you, you have differing apologetic methodologies. Uh, Reformed Christians are, are strongly influenced, at least today, by kind of more of a presuppositional, uh, uh, a Cornelius Van Til approach. But you also have reforms who take an evangelical or a classical approach. But I think in many ways, Protestants think of defending the faith, defending the gospel, defending the New Testament from a historical point of view. That these are things you can take as reliable. They, they, they happened in real time in history. And then devotion. Um, I, I, think, I think that Protestantism is a beacon for the idea of grace, that you're saved by grace. Uh, now, 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 Catholics and Orthodox don't deny that. Um, but I, I think Catholics and Orthodox would emphasize more the primacy of grace, not the exclusive nature of grace. And that, that's an important point, and it's an important difference. And of course, in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, that grace comes through the sacraments. So as an Orthodox and a Catholic, you don't want to cut yourself off from the church, which is the, it, which is the source of that grace. Um, again, it's not to say Protestants don't have sacraments. Lutherans, Anglicans definitely do. Um, maybe less so in some of the other uh, particular churches. But I think that idea of salvation by grace, and I, I think that Protestants can be very proud of the idea that their movement, and it's been going strong for 500 years, is a beacon of God's grace, scripture, grace, faith. Um, and that's, that's a tradition that, uh, like the other two, has strengths and weaknesses. Very good. Uh, Ken, I want to get your comment on one last uh, idea here as we wrap up the podcast on this whole notion of deconstruction leading to deconversion, it seems that another word we might put in there is examining uh, the faith. And that's fine. That's a good thing. I was listening to you describe your own journey earlier from Roman Catholicism to uh, a Lutheran uh, background and then um, Reformed and Anglican. Uh, in other words, I mean, that's what you do on this podcast. You you get, you want people to, to keep thinking You've used that that term before. I've I never want to stop thinking. So I wonder if that's another way to look at it, just examining ourselves instead of whoops, I gotta deconstruct and deconvert. I couldn't have said it better myself, Joe. I I think part of the conversion movement, not all of it. There, there's there's some criticisms that I think we need to be open to. Uh, you know, when churches become abusive to their members, when churches overstep, um, or when churches uh, politicize things to the place where you wonder, well, do I have to join a political party to be part of Christianity, or how do I think about those things? Some people get hurt. Here, here is my kind of simple explanation. I, I think people who end up deconverting, they have doubts. And the doubts are not addressed enough. And uh, then maybe they have a bad experience. Uh, 
and they begin to question not just the the viability of the people they've been interacting, the authenticity of the people, they begin to thinking, maybe I've bought into something that's not true from the get-go. Um, but of course, you have to think about that from a point of view. Remember, uh, I mean, I've had bad experiences in churches. Um, and But I also have to say, you know, there are people who would say, you know, I had interaction with Ken and, you know, he doesn't always act like the godly man. He can be difficult. Remember, um, we're sinners. We're broken. We're fallen. Um, if you interact with Christians long enough, they will step on your toes. But Jesus won't. Uh, Jesus was no hypocrite. Uh, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Um, I, I think sometimes people have given up their faith too quickly. I, I wish maybe they could have sat down, maybe if they had problems with science faith, maybe sit down with Dave or with Hugh or Fuzz or Jeff. Hey, you guys have doctoral degrees in these advanced fields. Can you help me out here a little bit? Or maybe people have philosophical questions about the problem of evil. I, I wish they could meet my friend J.P. Moreland. Uh, I wish they could, you know, listen to William Lane Craig, uh, articulate, thoughtful, uh, philosophers, um, or uh, read read St. Augustine's Confessions and tell me that's not a classic. You know, read some of the the very best material, and you might you might discover that um, you know even even in a time period where there's a lot of skepticism and where secularism has arisen. There are still some very robust arguments for believing the Bible is the word of God, for believing that God exists, for believing that Jesus is the son of God, the savior of the world. Um, so I am concerned that a good portion of maybe the people who have deconverted did it too quickly. Um, you know, I, I, I was listening to Bart Ehrman uh, debating on Justin Brierley's unbelievable program with a, a Peter Williams, a professor at Cambridge, talking about, can we trust the Bible? And I thought, well, Bart is educated, thoughtful. Um, but you know what? I don't think his criticisms stand. Um, I think the Bible, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's like a lion. Just let, let it open. <laughs> let people read it, um, you know. I wonder if I wonder if Father von Staupitz ever regretted telling Luther, go study the Bible. Yeah. All right. Great stuff. Thank you, Ken. Uh, speaking of reading material, uh, we can recommend a couple of books that you've written. You've discussed some of these historical figures on the last couple of podcasts, so we can recommend classic Christian thinkers uh, by Ken Samples, another book, Christianity Cross-Examined, for people looking at some of these difficult issues, you cover a lot of ground in brief fashion in that book as well. So we can recommend those. You mentioned a couple of books on this podcast as well in com by comparing the three branches. Um, you recommended uh, Robert Latham. Yes. What was the name of that one? Through Western Eyes? Through Western Eyes. It's yeah. specifically a reformed view of orthodoxy, but the issues certainly relate to Protestants and Catholics as yeah. well. 
and a book we've been mentioning all along uh, by Alistair McGrath, Christianity and Introduction. So plenty, plenty of reading material. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We sure hope you benefit from it and tell others to pass the link along and don't miss any of these uh, podcasts. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. You'll also see our other Reasons to Believe podcasts there, our show 2819, and now a new podcast uh, with a science emphasis, Stars, Cells, and God. So don't miss any of RTB's offerings. All right, that's going to wrap it up for Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening, and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.